Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. May is here, so that must mean it's time for episode 18 and the start of Superhero Month. Yes, Comfort Movie Month is behind us. No more comfort. We've had a whole month to get comfortable. Now we're just into the slog. You know, we've warmed up to this whole being stuck inside thing, and now we're ready to just really hit it hard. You know, I think we've all spent a good six weeks or so just collapsing in one way or another, climbing walls, pretending everything's completely fine. We know it's not okay, so we're good with that now. We're uh, we're fortified with that. <laughs> I went to uh, I I haven't been doing a lot of the the grocery shopping in my house and going out and about. Uh, I live with my sister and her her family, and she's been doing a lot of it just to keep that you know, one person out of the house. But we both went to Walmart the other day because uh, they were letting two people per family in. And I have to say, this is going to sound fucked up, but just to smell other people that weren't my family, that was really the first thing I noticed when I walked in. I just took a deep breath. I'm like, what's that strange odor? It's other people. It's store. It's preserving chemicals. It's clothes. It was strange. It was strange to be that excited to uh, to go to Walmart. But, you know, I guess everybody needs a little excitement these days. So speaking of excitement, like I said, it's Superhero Month. Now, I talked about last episode, this was all supposed to be building to the release of Black Widow and kicking off the phase four of, of Marvel, of the MCU. But as we all know, productions being canceled, release dates being pushed back, etc. That didn't happen. But I thought we could all use a hero in these dark times, so I'm still going to be talking about superheroes this month. So what I thought I would do is kind of go back to the beginning of this new wave of superhero movies. Now, it's hard to, you know, think of a time before the modern wave of movies kicked off with Iron Man in 2008. That seems so long ago. It's very strange. I I remember going to see Iron Man when it first came out. And it's hard to believe that it's been 12 years since, it'll be 12 years this year since that film came out. But believe it or not, there have been comic book movies way before then. So I want to go back even further to kind of the seeds of this new renaissance. Because the two movies I'm talking about this week, especially with X-Men, is kind of considered the the true kickoff point, what led to, to the modern renaissance of comic book movies with the MCU. But I think it actually, it really starts before that with the first film I'm going to talk about, Steve Norrington's Blade. So, synopsis right out of the way. So, Blade from 1998, a half-vampire, half-mortal man becomes a protector of the mortal race while slaying evil vampires. Yep, that works. So it's the 90s was a weird time for comic book movies since, you know, we had we had had Superman and I think 78, whichever. And then that franchise slowly fizzled out. There was some public flops with especially Howard the Duck, which I still maintain is quite a fun movie. And then Batman hit in 89 and that kind of blew it up again. They comic book movies were back and in a big way. But there was still this kind of prevalent thought that if it wasn't big characters, if it wasn't well-known things like Superman or especially Batman, you really couldn't get that movie made. And I don't know if it was just kind of the upbeat positivity of the 90s or if it was kind of a pushback from how dark Batman Returns was, but 
there was a real softening of comic book movies into the 90s. I think that's most prevalent with Batman Forever in 95 and Batman and Robin in 97. That franchise really toned it down in a big, bad way. But also, there because the Batman movies had been so successful, there was also this rush to, for production companies to start developing and releasing comic book movies that were based on slightly lesser known titles. And in some cases, movies that a lot of people might not even know were based off of comic books. You know, there was obviously Judge Dredd in 1995, The Mask, Jim Carrey's The Mask in 94, Men in Black in 97, Time Cop in 94. But in a lot of these cases, these movies were still toned down from their initial source material. I haven't read The Mask, but I've been told the comic book is a lot more graphic, a lot more violent. So that was kind of what people thought they could get away with at the time. And then, kind of like lightning out of a clear sky, here comes Blade. Now, full disclosure, I, I've i said before on the show that I'm, I'm not a big comic book reader. I'm actually not much of a comic book reader at all. So I was not familiar with the Blade character from his comic book at the time, or even still to this day. I haven't read a single comic book ever that featured the character of Blade. So my perspective on this is completely from a filmic point of view. I don't know how close they got the adaptation. I don't know if they completely botched it or it's considered very true and, you know, connected to the source material. I have no idea. So I can only talk about the movie itself. But I think it's fair to say for most people, this was not a well-known property in 1998. I, at the time, maybe somebody told me that it was based off of a comic book or I, you know, might have seen it in the opening credits, but that's as close as I got. I just thought it was an awesome movie that Wesley Snipes was in. I'm like, oh shit, the guy from Demolition Man is going to fucking kill vampires with a sword? Yes. Everything about that is yes. That seems like a no-brainer for a studio to greenlight. But from the opening scene of this movie, it's obvious that it wasn't going to be your average comic book movie. This was something new. Right off the hop, this is R-rated. This is an R-rated comic book film. And I think maybe other than the original Punisher with Dolph Lundgren, I don't know offhand any comic book movies that had gone that route. R-rated movies also weren't big in the 90s. They, you, especially to do an R-rated comic book film, like action movies and stuff were still playing, but that kind of macho era of the com- of the action hero guys was kind of lagging. Like Stallone was still having some hits, maybe by this point, but to think you could make a hyper-violent action movie, let alone a hyper-violent action horror movie, even with a star that had some kind of bankability like Wesley Snipes, That still seemed like a risky move. But fuck, this movie is awesome. And like I said, from that opening scene, you know it was something different. It was everything that comic book movies weren't at the time and really hadn't been before that. It was violent. It was kinetic. And most of all, it was engaging. There was a real sense of stakes about this movie. Pun completely intended. So... Just to talk about the visual style of this film, because it was something so new at the time, but it shares this kind of odd brethren of films that came around that same era. 
it carries on, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of this goth noir style that The Crow had started in 1994. Yes, I know The Crow, you could say, was an earlier comic book adaptation that completely got it. But to be perfectly honest, I want to talk about The Crow in October. So obviously we know that film is hugely important. But it carries on kind of this, like I said, this goth noir visual style that The Crow had started, and from the same director, Alice Proyas, Dark City would continue actually in the same year in 1998, and then The Matrix would continue it the following year. And all of these films coming out within a year of each other, and would have been in production at the same time, now it's for people that care about any of this stuff, it's noted the impact that Dark City and The Crow had on The Matrix and its visual style. They even bought sets and shared sets between, I think, Dark City and The Matrix. But there is there are echoes not just visually of each other, but thematically of each other in these films. And that's something that I hadn't really picked up on much, watching Blade before this, but I also hadn't really sat down to try and give it a really in-depth analysis before. So watching it this time, this wonderful idea of this, there being a world beneath the one that we know, the world as we know it being just kind of this fantasy that this care, you know, the new character is coming in and finding out, you know, this, the hematologist, the doctor character in the film, she's gone about her whole life, just thinking everything's completely normal. And in one moment, everything changes. And she realizes the world that she thinks she knows doesn't actually exist. It's all a fallacy and a facade. And that's in, like it's it's intrinsically late 90s to have that kind of thought process where the world that we, as we think we know it, isn't real. It can't be real. And there's a lot of films that dealt with that. And like I said, just citing the those three films with Blade, Dark City, and The Matrix, they all deal in some way with those those similar themes. You know, humans are experimental subjects in... Dark City. They're batteries in The Matrix. They're food in Blade. This whole idea that humans aren't, that we're being controlled by some kind of higher entity, that the world as we know it isn't ours. So into this world steps Blade. And he's, yes, Wesley Snipes as an actor has had a I guess it would be fair to say a contentious career. He never really had kind of this explosive star power like guys like Bruce Willis or Sylvester Stallone or Arnold Schwarzenegger had. I think that might be because he never really had his standout franchise. And I guess you could say other than the Blade movies. But he plays the character so well. And especially in this first film, there is a lot of character to Blade this time around, but still played very much in that straight-faced, anti-hero, almost kind of a, a gunslinger vibe, you know, but with a sword. And comparing it to the other films in the franchise, it's a much more dynamic presentation of the character this time around, and I think that's good. He doesn't get... He's not 
the major focus, despite being the star of the film, wisely, because you can't have a character that doesn't say much be your star. You have to have other interesting characters around him. And the hematologist, she's great. Chris Christopherson, you know, the the grizzled old Gandalf smoking cigarettes and chugging JD and shooting guns is great. But Wesley Snipes' presentation of Blade in this one is so much fun because it's unapologetic of the character. And I think that's something that would take a lot of time to catch on. And I think it's something that we wouldn't really see grabbed hold of and really put to practice until the MCU started, where they weren't ashamed of the main characters. They weren't trying to change what made them work on the page just to fit what they thought the dynamic that the audience wanted to see was to make them more palatable to kind of to tone it down. Like a lot of the films were doing at the time, a perfect example with judge dread in 95, you know, if you want to see a proper representation of judge dread, you watch the new dread with Carl Urban. Yes. The design work in Stallone's dread is closer to the comic, Personally, I love Stallone's Judge Dredd because it's so cheesy and so over the top, but the violence is toned way back and Dredd takes his helmet off, which he's never done in the comic books. So little things like that. Where here, Blade is super violent, killing people, beating the shit out of people, unapologetic about it, but they still give him just enough moments to shine and get his little one-liners in and his zingers in, but not trying to make him family-friendly, give him a love story, anything like that. It would have been easy, I think, easier, definitely, to do this as kind of a PG-13, you could almost say more Buffy-style movie, and then the kids can come, they can make action figures, and you go that route with it. Instead, you know, this balls-out move to do a hard-hard comic book movie in 1998. I remember how stoked people were when Deadpool came out, because it was R-rated. And it's another one of those times. And no, don't get me wrong here. I love Deadpool. Those two movies are great, especially the first one. But it's another instance of something happens with film or media, and everybody loves to grab a hold and go, this is the first time, oh my god, we can't believe this has never been done before. It's like when they when Wonder Woman came out and everyone was so quick to jump on the fact that, oh, a woman has never had a, let alone a comic book character, a, a major tentpole franchise before. And film people, and again, horror people just had to kind of sit back for a second and go, uh, excuse us. Rachel Talele with first... Tank Girl, and before that, Freddy's Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, major franchise moments. Now, that's not to say that I've made this argument before, I did it on a frame apart. Not to say that's downplaying the, the success of more women directing movies like this, or getting to have hard R or R-rated comic book films where appropriate, just R-ing something up isn't makes absolutely no sense, but that's an argument for a completely different show. But these things had happened before, and I think it's easy to overlook a film like Blade. I personally, I've even overlooked it myself. 
I, time and time again, if I'm going to watch a Blade movie, I usually go back and watch Blade 2 because it's a Guillermo del Toro film, and I love it for that. But they're so dynamically different. And I think also Blade got lost in that shuffle when, because X-Men would come out two years later, and that would be the film that, especially X2, that would kind of kick off this wave of superhero movies. We'll get to X-Men in a couple of minutes here. And because Blade Trinity ended the franchise on such a sour note, and then Wesley Snipes went to jail, and the franchise got kind of cast in a bit of a bad light in that ill-advised TV show that they did a season of, for whatever the hell reason. Well, money, that's why. So it's it's easy to forget the success of a film like Blade, where you could take, you know, tell me if this sounds familiar. We're going to take an unknown character, or I should say a very poorly known character that's never had a live action adaptation before, and we're going to release it into a climate that hasn't been very kind to superhero movies, let alone unknowns, and we're going to go completely against the grain of how these films are made. Sound familiar? That's the pitch for Iron Man. Like it's, and Blade was there first. Now, obviously they're very different films, but I don't know if you'd have the roots that the MCU has got to stand on without a film like Blade. It wasn't afraid to embrace more of the aspects of the comic book and this kind of rich mythology that they hinted on in the first movie. And as much as I love the second movie, it's almost a shame that they didn't get to explore it a little more. Things like they mentioned the Book of Erebus, the Vampire Bible, and these these ideas of these vampire legends and prophecies and their own gods. It's it's a genuine shame that they didn't come back to that. Or these kind of weird freak vampires. You know, the giant fat fuck pearl. And that they just cook with the with the ultraviolet flashlight. That scene is brutal. With this fat horrible thing screaming and they're just deep frying him or her, I'm not quite sure. Like that's vicious. And then the the idea that sometimes when they bite people, they don't turn. They turn into these kind of zombie things that'll just eat anything. And she has to fight the guy that she used to date in the pit. Like, that's that's brutal. And it's, as again, as much as I love Blade 2, it's a shame that when they got to Blade 3, they didn't kind of go back to that. And instead, they just like, oh, Dracula's in this and he's a hunk. Oh, okay, sure. And then completely floored it, floored the franchise. Hopefully, with the announcement that Marvel's going to be doing a new version of Blade, that they kind of go back to that. I think because with the MCU, there's been such an acceptance that you can go as wild into the comic book mythology as you want, and the audience will follow you if you present a good story well told. And I think Blade was one of the first films to really do that. They they could have easily gone a simpler route. They could have had a less complex plot, but they they went for it. You know, they weren't ashamed of the source material. And I think that's the big takeaway with something like Blade. And I think that 
will butt up a little bit against X-Men when we move on here in a second. But that's what I primarily take away from Blade, beyond the fact that it's it's an absolute blast to watch. Like I said, it's fun, it's violent, it's strange, that kind of goth noir, techno-noir style that they have about the whole about the proceedings is just a riot. But there's a complete and utter embrace of the Source Machillion, where it came from, that we got our first glimpse into what could have been a much larger world for Blade to go out and explore in terms of his his own roots and his own mythology. And that's something I hope they they stick with more when we get into the next one. So excellent movie. Just if you've never gotten past the opening scene, which I can understand because that opening scene is incredible. I guess I hinted that I was going to talk about that and then didn't get back to it at all. But that opening with the blood rave is just wild. And then he just shows up with his blade rang and sorting people and shooting and to see the vampires disintegrating like that. It's just absolutely fucking wild. Considering, really, the vampires that we were getting in pop culture at that point, Buffy started the same year, couldn't be more diametrically opposed than Blade and Buffy. Like, they're they're very different animals. But absolutely awesome movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, go and check it out. Watch the first two. Watch the third one if you're curious where Ryan Reynolds practiced playing Deadpool, because that's where he practiced playing Deadpool. It's an absolute blasty blast of a time. Now, if Blade was kind of the underdog character and the less well-known, we're going to swing right to the complete opposite end of the spectrum for 2000's X-Men. So, synopsis for anyone that doesn't know what X-Men is about. In a world where mutants, evolved superpowered humans in brackets, thank you, exist and are discriminated against, two groups form an inevitable clash, the Supremacist Brotherhood and the Pacifist X-Men. Wouldn't really call them pacifists, but close enough. So the X-Men were obviously the more well-known characters. During the 80s or late 80s and especially into the 90s, the X-Men were huge between the animated series and the comic books, the chewing gum, everything. They were in pop culture. They were known to people. And this is the film. You you could make the argument that it was more so X2 that kicked off the, the wave of superhero movies. But I think it really comes back to, to the X-Men, to 2000's X-Men. And again, it kicked off this wave of movies you could say is for better or worse because there was it was usually worse but it that also allowed for the trial and error that eventually led to Iron Man and the establishment of the MCU they got to see a lot of characters done wrong to figure out what they didn't want to do now this movie also it had a lot of credibility going for it right off the hop. Not only did it have the popularity of the characters, but you also had Patrick Stewart coming on as Professor X, who in the 90s was one of the most famous faces in the world, having played Captain Picard for so many years. And this critical respectability, not only from the books and Picard, but also you have Ian McKellen coming on to play Magneto. Like, that's just, that's, your dream cast right there for something like this. 
And you know, Chris Claremont has even said that himself to see these actors saying his lines was crazy. And just a quick note on Chris Claremont. Again, as having not been a huge reader of the comic books, I can only go what I know from the cartoon and watching documentaries and such. But there's an excellent documentary on Tubi called just Chris Claremont's X-Men. And Chris Claremont is was is a comic book writer who basically single-handedly wrote the X-Men for almost 15 years. He handled all of the storylines, most of the offshoots. He was the one generating this material. And the animated series is based on his runs, and the movies were based on his most popular runs on it, to the point where when this film film was in development hell and it spent a long time there trying to get the scripts right, Chris Claremont actually sent the writing team a document that basically outlined who the characters were, how they interacted, and what the popular dynamics were. And that's what kicked them off and gave us the movie as we know it today, the first X-Men. And again, that is almost no bearing on what I'm going to be talking about, but it's just a neat fun fact. There's a hell of a lot to know about the X-Men. Oh my God, it's impossible to know, but uh, they're well. Aaron Grinley, I'm looking at you if you're listening to this. I'm sure you know it. So I obviously grew up watching the cartoon, and I've just started re-watching it again, and it's actually still pretty fucking dope. Uh, the Iron Man cartoon has aged like milk, but this one is actually still pretty sweet and doesn't hide from the intense character dynamics right off the hop. So check it out. It's on Disney+. Plus. But I remember going to see this movie with my dad when it first came out because he had read the X-Men comics when he was younger. And he's like, yeah, shit, we'll go see X-Men. That's dope. Obviously, he didn't say it like that. Uh, But I remember sitting in the theater and being so excited. I'm like, fuck, I'm going to get to see the X-Men. And it's going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. And the Batman movies kind of suck now. At least I thought so at the time. But the later two Batman movies I love. And it's going to be awesome and fun and big and bombastic. And what's the very first scene that we see in the film? It opens in Auschwitz. That was, I remember that image and people kind of looking around at each other like, what is going on? This, just how the opening scene of Blade was completely different. This was completely different at the total other end of the spectrum. Obviously, Blade killing vampires at the Blood Rave is completely different than Auschwitz. But it was shocking, but it was perfect because it clearly set the tone of the X-Men struggle. It grounded us for everybody in a completely legitimate way. This is the level of racism and xenophobia that we're going to be dealing with in this story and the stories going forward. This is the level of intensity that we're dealing with. And it also helps to ground Magneto because it's easy for Magneto just to become kind of a megalomaniacal villain. And as he would in later sequels, look at X3. All he does is stand there and spout nonsense the whole time. But by starting on him, we're starting on the villain and we're not even starting it in the way we know. It becomes completely understandable of It becomes completely understandable why he would eventually do what he does, why he would be driven to that. If his roots were in that kind of 
extreme hate, extreme racism, extreme xenophobia. And for him to have lived with this power and to see that all start to crop up again with the Mutant Registration Act that they deal with in this film. Of course he would go that route. It's perfectly sensible. It's awful and it's sad, but it makes sense. And that's what sets something like the X-Men apart from a lot of other books, that there was real meat, real depth here. On the other end of that spectrum of things they did really well, really right, right off the hop, I will never forget, and I remember it every single time I sit and watch this movie, that scene where the guy's poking Wolverine in the bar, and he goes to pull the knife on him, and he stands up, and the two claws come out in slow motion, and then the middle one comes out and stops at his throat. I will never, ever forget that. I was elated. One, it was new. His... Wolverine's claws traditionally came out of the backs of his hands, not in between his fingers, which actually makes more sense. But that was just, oh my God, I never got tired of that. And I had not watched the first X-Men in some time when I sat down to do prep for this episode. So to get to kind of relive that moment, because we've seen him, you know, snick, snicked umpteen amounts of times as the franchise has gone forward. But to see it here again and just kind of go back to that scene and that feeling of being a kid again. I even I knew I was going to be watching this, so I even went out and I got some popcorn so I could kind of have that relive that moment. It was just it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen in a movie. And I'm sure if I was pushed to do a list of like coolest movie theater moments you've ever had, Wolverine's Claws, if not in the top five, would probably be in the top ten. It was just awesome. While they did a lot of things right, this was still at a time where, you know, pre-MCU, there was still a feeling that you couldn't dive too deep into the visual style of the comic books. You could take the characters and you could take the storylines, but a lot of the visuals were still considered comic booky, and that's kid stuff, and we can't do that. So a lot of the key visual iconographies from the comic books, they were really played down, specifically the uniforms. They even make a joke about that, you know, because they've got them in these black leather jumpsuits. And Cyclops even says, what would you prefer, yellow spandex? Because obviously Wolverine's outfit was yellow in the comic books. So they're going for a much more gritty, grounded sense to this universe. So the X-Men feel like they completely fit into not just the world we live in, but the design aesthetic of the world we live in. While they were still downplaying some of these elements, some of the more bombastic visual elements, one of the key reasons that I think the first X-Men, or the first two X-Men especially, were so successful and along the same lines why something like Blade is so successful, is they played it straight. They didn't stop at any point and kind of throw a wink at the audience and ask them to play along. You know, that's that level of camp that they gave to, to the Batman movies, especially later on. But I think if you go back and watch Tim Burton's first Batman, that's the Adam West Batman. You can grit that up all you want, 
But those movies are very campy. Now, obviously, it got more extreme by the time we get to Batman and Robin with, you know, like the back credit card and all that stupid shit, which is hilarious now. But there were no winks. None of this was played as a joke. These were real characters in a very real situation, which made the film, it's very straightforward in its approach. And I think at that time, that was a very smart decision to make, especially because there's so many characters. With something like Blade, you can, because you're only focusing on one character, we know what vampires are. Vampires want to suck people's blood, and they operate behind the scenes and run a bunch of things. Easy. They explain who Blade is. Cool. Then they have kind of the rest of the movie to casually explain to you the whole Lamagra blood god thing, which they do over and over and over again to make sure that you've got it. But here, you have so many characters to introduce. You have so much conflict to introduce that you have to have a very simple, straightforward plot. Magneto is mad about mutant registration. So he's going to turn everybody, all these world leaders, into mutants, and Charles sends the X-Men to stop him. No fuss, no muss. That is a straightforward plot. It, that is a not-messing-around plot. That is an elevator pitch of a movie right there. And that really worked in its favor. Because while the film does, it still does rely on a certain amount of pre-existing knowledge of the characters... It was still so, and still is, so easy to follow that you don't need to be a big X-Men fan to follow this plot. And I think that's what allowed it to be so successful, because it is sparse. This is a straightforward film. And it's actually kind of fun to go back and watch this, because there's been, well, there's been so many X-Men films since then. And there's just been so many comic book movies since then. And we've had the entirety of the MCU. But to go back and just watch the first X-Men and to see how relatively light and how it's just kind of a straightforward adventure. Yes, there's big themes at play, but they don't really beat you over the head with it any more than the X-Men need to, to get their point across. Even Wolverine isn't this hyper-tortured character that he would eventually turn into with his screen presentation. And it's also still, it's fun to see Hugh Jackman a little doughy at this point. Like, he's still fit, but he's a little doughy. And it's because he would become so known for his insane levels of prep to play the character in future films when he's just right fucking jacked out of his mind. Hugh Jackman. But here, he's just... Kind of more of a brutish dude, but out to do the right thing by Rogue. And, man, I don't like Cyclops, but I'm still going to go and save the day because I'm Wolverine and I save the day. They act like heroes, not somebody in a tortured, lunatic nightmare. And, like, I get that. You know, I like the Wolverine, the second solo movie they did. Days of Future Past is, is fucking awesome. Logan was incredible. But it's nice to kind of go back to the start, you know, before we knew all about the Weapon X program and how he lost his mind and saw any of that presented. It's nice to see just kind of a fun, straightforward version of the X-Men. It was, it's refreshing. But that approach does make the film relatively light on character. No one really arcs. No one really changes. 
you could say Wolverine goes from, you know, kind of the outsider loner to a bit more of a team player. You know, he learns to care and learns to be compassionate. But also, we know he's compassionate as soon as he lets Rogue come into the, like, doesn't let her freeze to death on the side of the highway. You know, there is a, still, unfortunately, this pre-existing knowledge to get much out of the characters. You know, especially in the case of, you know, Storm and Cyclops are just kind of there. You know, Cyclops is just, I'm the man in charge, the good guy. Storm does some stuff with lightning and wind a couple of times. Jean Grey is in the film. But beyond their names and their powers, all we really get is kind of a loose sense of their hierarchy. That's really all we get from them. But for the time, you know, as the first film to really kind of kick this off, I get why they went small, you know, compared to how they would get so overblown with the X-Men movies later on with so many characters and so many mutants and so many powers that you just start to lose everybody in the mud of these films. But here it's, you know, three or four good guys, three or four bad guys, and they have a couple of small scale skirmishes. Most of the action is at the end of the film and it's, it's quaint. I hate to use the word quaint because it makes me sound like I'm being condescending towards this film, and I'm really not because it is it is a fun hoot. But it is hard not to look at it through nostalgic lenses and to see the effects that were still, you know, effects that were done in 1999 and 2000. Not a huge reliance on complicated CG, lots of sets and wire work. That's cute. It's fun. No one really goes crazy. No one goes super over the top. And when they do try and do that, it it comes off lovely. At the time, it was incredible, you know, to that scene where Wolverine claws into the, scene, the uh, Statue of Liberty and spins around her crown and then lands down on his feet. That's like the big CG action money shot of the whole film. And it still holds up because we're invested with Wolverine in that point. And that's what's fun about this film, is there is a delightful simplicity to it. And it allowed it to, the franchise, to start to grow. Now, obviously, it would start to become centered solely around Wolverine, which is a shame, because obviously the the X-Men are so much more dynamic than just Wolverine, but, you know, give the audience what they want, Fox, but whatever, MCU has them back now, so we'll see what they do. But if you haven't watched it in a while... Go back and watch the first one. Go back and watch the first two. Yes, it is a franchise that, despite still making money, kind of managed to flush itself down the toilet, pull itself back out of the toilet, and then kind of flushed itself back down the toilet again. So, and the X-Men, the characters are so reliable, and there's still so much story there that Marvel will reach into that toilet again that, you know, Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix just, because there's a lot of turds in there. Like, you're going to have to get a coat hanger and bust those turds up before you can find the characters underneath. And they'll pull them out and put them back on the big screen, and they'll completely crush it. But this really is the roots of, of where it all started. It proved you could take well-known big characters and you could do them some sort of justice on the big screen. And between Blade and X-Men, that's, I think, really where it starts. 
you the argument could be made for the crow. Yes. But I think the crow is so niche and so different in its own way that I don't know if it actually even it does I don't think it can count in the same argument. If someone was to write the book, it's obviously in that book, but I don't think it had the impact that something like Blade and X-Men and especially X2 would have that would eventually bring us to Iron Man. So it's always fun to go back and learn your history of where these things come from because there's always rich roots to go and explore, especially with the history of not just comic books in general because that's just fascinating, but comic book films in general. Because you can even go back past Batman and Superman into the way earlier stuff, the old serials. It's It has a very rich lineage. It's easy for the new films, especially the MCU, to overshadow it. But go back and look. It's, it's, worth, it's worth your time. So something else that's worth your time, Deep Space Nine. Okay, episode 18. For people that haven't been as overjoyed with uh, Star Trek as I am, obviously, we, uh, we only have uh, two more episodes left of season one. Yay, season one only had 19 episodes. So we're on to episode 18, Duet, which aired June 13th, 1993. A Cardassian suffering from Kalinora, a disease that indicates he served in a labor camp, visits DS9. Kira is determined to convict him as a war criminal. So this episode is fucking awesome. And it's an episode that really, really leans into the parallels between the Cardassian occupation of Bajor and the Holocaust being World War II. The Holocaust in World War II, obviously, not the Holocaust being World War II. Derp. So specifically with the the labor camp in question, the Galatep labor camp, subbing in for any number of Nazi concentration camps. So this is a real boys from Brazil kind of a situation. And it is a great return to a very DS9 specific episode. This is only an episode or an episode of Trek that Deep Space Nine could do this well and this deep and this brutal. It's such a complex issue, this issue of the difference between justice and revenge. And it's something that Deep Space Nine was built to explore coming out with the Bajorans coming out of the Cardassian occupation. And it's a journey that Kira has been on for most of this season and will continue throughout the rest of the show. And it would have been an easy way out for the writers of this episode to just have a suspected war criminal show up on the station. Kira has to investigate it and forego her personal revenge in favor of bringing them to justice instead. That's still a good episode. That would have got some good character work for Kira because she's obviously the focus of this one. It would have given us some more information about the occupation itself, but no. In typical Deep Space Nine fashion, they go way deeper. They do not take the easy way out. And it would be a hallmark of the best of what DS9 was capable of. So, what it comes down to, because we have this mystery of this guy has shown up, he has this disease, he could have only got if he was in this one place, 
He's pretending to be one person, and they relatively easily find out that he's somebody different. And it turns out that they believe, and he's claiming to be basically Mangala. You know, he was the head of this labor camp that committed huge atrocities, and he's in his cell screaming about, yes, it was me, fuck you, Bajor, I should have killed all of you, and he's just on Kira, berating her, doing everything he can to get her just blind with fury. Instead, we had, turns out we have a Cardassian who was a clerk at this labor camp and was so haunted by his own inability to stand up for the Bajorans who were being tormented and murdered and killed and tortured. So haunted by this, what he perceives as this cowardice to be able to stand up for these people that he physically alters himself with plastic surgery to become and look like the head of this camp so that he can return to Bajor and they can have someone to kill. They can have someone that will die for what was done to these people so that this, he can stand up in front of Bajor and the sector and the Federation and take responsibility for what was done for these war crimes, for these atrocities. That's such a heavy twist to take because not only does it force Major Kira to deal with the issues of justice versus revenge, it also forces us to start taking a different look at the Cardassians in general. It's very much this kind of post-World War II mentality, where during the war, all Germans were, were evil, all Japanese were evil, and all of a sudden the war is over, and you start to realize that no, not every German who served was evil, not every German citizen was evil, the same with the Japanese. And you have to now go on in society, and you can't condemn everybody because their country or planet in this case, or planets, went and did something hideous. So you have these two hugely complex storylines going on. Kira finds out what's going on and forgives this man. It's And even she says, you know, he's like, you should just kill me, just kill me. He said, no, enough good people are dead. And she wants to work with him so he can be rehabilitated and be the, be the Cardassian that the sector, that the Bajorans need to see. That they're not all brutes. They're not all monsters. And what do we end with? A Bajoran runs up and fucking kills the guy. And his only argument is, well, he was a Cardassian. That's a good enough reason for him to die. And that's the shot they go out on. Boom. Fucking mic drop. That's incredible. I don't think any of the other Star Treks would have had the balls to go out on something like that. And even if they did, the characters involved would have been so far removed from the crimes. Even if it was a criminal that, oh, you know, it turns out Geordi's sister had been, we thought, murdered by somebody, whatever. They would have never come back to this again. Ever. For Kira and for Cisco dealing with the back and forth between Cardassia and Bajor, for Kira it never goes away. The next episode, we're still on the station with Bajorans and Cardassians. The issue isn't gone. And that's what 
DS9 does so well. And this is an incredible episode to show just what the series was capable of. And, you know, they're getting their feet under them. And we're going to start to get more and more of these great episodes as we go along. Still be missteps, but this one is might be one of the best episodes of the first season, if not the best episode of the entire first season of the show. It's everything the show does well. And throughout it, no spaceships, no space battles, no tech problems that they're trying to solve. We see O'Brien doing a bit of maintenance. You know, people are asking, clicking keys to send files back and forth. But that's it. No Trek, no babble, no nonsense. It's characters and it's character drama. Fucking fantastic. Absolutely perfect. Books. I read uh, last week, I think. Uh, Christopher Brahms' Gods and Monsters. Now, it is a historical fiction novel about the last month of James Whale's life. Uh, For those of you that don't know, James Whale is the director that made Frankenstein, Old Dark House, Bride of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man. Very famous director in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Basically invented the Universal Monsters. Okay? This and was also this film was made into a, a this film this book was made into a film uh, that starred Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. I have not seen it, uh, but I've heard it's quite good. So this book was tricky. It the subject matter is fascinating. This fifties era Hollywood is the studios are starting to collapse. That era of Los Angeles and the and Hollywood was a very interesting time, and visually it's very rich, and I love that period of of Hollywood history. the The book was tricky. The prose style isn't easy to get into, and it took me a chapter or two to warm up. The, the setup is James Wales had a debilitating stroke and he's getting sicker and sicker. And during this last month of his life, he forms this relationship with his gardener, the man that comes to do his gardens. And he asks to paint him. Uh, and as he's painting, he's slowly starting to deal with these memories of his past. His early homosexual encounters his experience living poor in England, his experience in World War I, which was just horrendous in the trenches, and his experience of making Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and his contentious relationship with Hollywood and all those other things. The, the relationship dynamic between him and the gardener is, is interesting a lot of the time because in early Hollywood, it uh, there was obvious, and to this day, there's... It's gay people in the arts. That's, whoa, sh- I know, shocker, piece of, that's a bombshell I'm dropping there. But in early Hollywood, nobody gave a shit who you lived with, who you were sleeping with, whatever, as long as you kept it out of the papers, as long as you didn't cause scandal. Nobody cared. So there were directors like Whale that were living out loud, and nobody in Hollywood cared. But by the 50s, obviously the climate in the world had changed. So we're seeing this, you know, reveal of how the, the climate of the world has changed through the eyes of his gardener as he comes to learn that James Whale is gay. And we start to see how his opinions change and like, whoa, maybe what I've, you know, he's a farm boy from nowhere. Obviously, he's got a very homophobic worldview. 
maybe my view is incorrect. This is just an awesome dude and I want to know him and spend time with him. Wow, this is this is great. And as that relationship goes on, the the book is is quite enjoyable. But it takes this wild fucking left turn at the very end that I have to say was jarring to say the least. And I to me it strikes me as a situation where the an author made a decision because they wanted something to happen instead of making a decision because something organically needed to happen with the story. I found it jarring and out of place based on the information that had been presented and the characters as they had been presented. It seemed jarring and I don't want to say it ruined the book because it didn't. It was still a enjoyable read, but unfortunately it took a bit of a dump at the end. So I still recommend it. And just if you're a fan of, of old Hollywood of the universal monsters, it's a very interesting read. It's not enjoyable front to back, but it's still an enjoyable read. I'm going to get better at reviewing these books. It's tough because you don't want to, you know, it's easier to point criticisms out in a movie than it is to point criticisms out in a book. I guess you could say it's not my skill set. I should practice more. Do more episodes, Bob? I agree. Thanks, guys. I'm glad you're enjoying the material. It makes me feel happy. So for recommendations, uh, I recommend uh, This Seems Easy to Me. If you like Blade, go watch Blade 2. Guillermo del Toro, fucking awesome. If you like X-Men, my favorite X-Men movie is Days of Future Past. And a combination of the original cast meeting the first class cast. And they balanced those two groups so well. It was great to see the older actors come back into their roles. The, The action is balanced really well with the character work. Quicksilver steals every scene that he's in. Days of Futures Past is as great as the original X-Men franchise ever got. I would say Logan, but Logan is a Wolverine movie. It's not an X-Men movie. So definitely check it out. In terms of books, I recommend Marvel Comics by Sean Howe. This is a very thorough history of Marvel Comics themselves. So not the history of the films or anything, but the history of the comic company itself. It's in-depth, it's interesting, it's funny, it's weird, it's horrible. It is just an excellent read. It's up there along with something like Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, that level of detail and interwoven uh, interviews and subject matter and plot. If you like comic books, if you just like media, it's well worth reading. You will, if you don't know a lot about the books, you will learn so much about the history of comics. And if you're a comic book fan, there's just more to love. So definitely check that out. Whew. Coming next week, hero stuff continues. Yay. So we looked at two very well-known films this week. And so I thought next week we'd go completely into left field for these next two films. So we're going to be looking, or I'm going to be looking at Dr. Mordred, i.e. what happens when a company loses the rights to a franchise but still built a bunch of sets. Fuck it, we'll make our own version. And one of the most colossal comic book flops of all time, Howard the Duck. So 
that should be an absolute blast. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. So until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast, on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Like, follow, subscribe, share, post, message, text, seagulls, the whole whatever it is. However you want to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you guys for listening. Um, every day I go on the SoundCloud and I see the listens and it it does warm my heart. It genuinely does warm my heart to know that people out there are listening, even if it's just friends and family. So hello, friends and family, or friends and family I haven't yet met. So until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.